Our Father, having now participated together in this meal that you ordained, that your church practice until you come, we want to now explore how what we have just done contributes to our understanding of who you are. Father, I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, even in this moment, so that we can behold your wonders and your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is so good to be able to open up God's Word again with you all together here in the same room. It's been too long. And in God's providence, this uh, back-together happened at the same time that we reached the last part in our series called When We All Get Together, What We Gain When the Church Assembles. We've been thinking about the question, what is so special about church? What is so special about the assembled church? Why is it important that we gathered, that we gather like this? What, what were we losing when we couldn't meet? And what do we gain when we do meet? Maybe this 13-week exile has made you ask those kinds of questions. I confess that with me being raised, going to church every Sunday, I hadn't ever given that a lot of thought. Going to church is just what Christians do. And so, if nothing else, this prolonged absence has made me think about why it is that, church, that Christians need to come together in local churches to which they belong at least once a week. We've outlined our series by thinking about five pillars of corporate congregational worship. The corporate congregational worship of the people of God going way back to early Protestant worship in the 1500s. A protest movement, interestingly enough, which among other things aimed to restore early church worship as found in the New Testament and which aimed to make the Bible accessible to the people of God. So those five pillars of church-gathered worship were therefore centered on the Bible. We talked about the fact that when local churches come together for worship, they should in- include an emphasis on reading the Word, and on praying the Word, and on singing the Word, and on hearing the Word. We said that when God's people gather for worship on the Lord's Day, God works through God's Word for the spiritual good of God's people. God speaks through His Word. And therefore, when the church gathers, we want to be exposed to God's Word and to hear God's voice, knowing that God's Word is perfect, knowing that God's Word is truth, and knowing that God sanctifies His people by the truth. By his word. This is what we gain when we assemble. We congregate as the people of God in order to collectively worship our God and to sit under our sovereign God and King as he is present with his people and as he speaks to his people, as we are collectively reminded of what God has done to make us into a people. As we congregate for Christian fellowship, God uses His Word to shape us and to equip us 
and to fortify us and to indeed unite us together and unify us. Well, today we want to think together about one more essential aspect of our word-centered worship, and that is the concept of seeing the word, seeing the word. This is talking about um, the, the ordinances that we just did. One of them we just did, Lord's Supper, and we have another one as the church, which is baptism. So we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we hear the word, and we see the word. So what did the, the Protestant um, reformers mean by seeing the word? Well, like I said, it's talking about these two ordinances, sometimes called sacraments, that Jesus told, that Jesus ordained, that the apostles, the first leaders, do in order to help them remember the gospel in a tangible way. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and communion. In contrast to the first four, this is not something that necessarily needs to happen every week, but it should happen regularly. Why? For what purpose? Well, I want to try to answer that question by explaining why baptism and the Lord's Supper are framed as seeing the Word, seeing the Scriptures. It's because when we observe baptism, or when we participate in the Lord's Supper, it affects our senses. It affects that sensory part of our being that God has wired into us. We're not just taking information into our minds. We're actually watching something take place and we're hearing something and we're touching something. And when we see something and hear something and touch something and taste something, it is a different way of experiencing a reality such that we remember it better. And that reality, that event that the church needs to regularly remember is that God has reached down in His grace and in His kindness and in His mercy and in His love, He has reached down to save His people from their sins. God has reached down to save His people. And He has reached down to save His people in the person of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, the people of God gathered together in a church, in one place, can in some way feel the sufferings of Christ, can visualize the cross, can see the gospel. And the seeing of the gospel helps God's people remember the gospel. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are God's way of appealing to our senses. But not only do they remind us of the gospel that saves, they also remind us all of the gospel that unites us into one body, into one fellowship. Baptism and the Lord's Supper help us see the gospel story. They are visible symbols of gospel truths. So let's find out where Jesus tells the church to practice these ordinances and what the church gains in practicing these ordinances together. You know, in the last 30 years or so, there's actually been a whole movement, we almost call it a whole industry, that has formed within evangelical Christianity called the church growth movement. 
All kinds of books, all kinds of strategies, uh, denominations put together courses, 10-step plans, all those sort of things. And it has worked to some degree, and we see it with the dawning of megachurches. And the main thing that these church growth gurus keep harping on is that the church needs to somehow be relevant. It needs to conform to the world in order to win the world. And part of what it means to uh, attract the, the unchurched, sometimes called the unchurched Harrys or the unchurched Sallies, is to, um, is to entertain and one of the ways to entertain is to include drama, in, include skits in your worship. That will grab their attention, and then you can hit them with a very short Bible lesson. Well, that strategy has some merit. It has lots of merit. It's actually in the Bible. It's not a novel strategy. The Bible itself has already prescribed two Dramas, you can call them skits if you want, two dramas for the church, for Christian worship. Are you ready? They're called baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're told to perform, it's probably a bad word, but for this context it works, we're told to perform those dramas over and over again, those two and only those two. They grab our attention and they embed themselves into our memories. They do exactly what dramas are meant to do, what the church growth people are saying they're supposed to do, but they're old. This is not a new, new thing. Since baptism is kind of the entrance point or the initiating ceremony into the church and is sometimes called the first act of Christian obedience, let's start with that one. In baptism, the church sees the scriptures. In baptism, the church sees the gospel. The crucified and resurrected Jesus tells the church to baptize people over in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19, 20. This is a familiar passage. Most of you will have heard it. Most of you know it. We call it the Great Commission. This is what Jesus is commissioning his disciples, what he's commissioning the, the apostles, the first church leaders, to do after he has ascended into heaven. These are their marching orders, and they come right from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's go back to uh, verse 16 of chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went, in, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Love that. As Jesus goes, he's still with them. So as they're going and making disciples and baptizing them and teaching, God is there giving them the authority, empowering them to do this. He hasn't really left. So this is what they were supposed to do. Their their number one aim is to make disciples, to preach Jesus Christ. And when people become followers of Jesus, when they become disciples of Jesus, they must first be baptized and then taught to observe everything that 
Jesus commanded them. First baptized, and then we teach them. Jesus is talking to the 11 disciples there, but this would become the aim of the church. A few days after Jesus gave the Great Commission to the 11, he ascended, and then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit would come. We read about that in Acts 2, and people started declaring mighty works of God in all kinds of languages. And then, Peter preaches the very first sermon. So head over to Acts chapter 2. It's a long sermon, and he basically just preaches Jesus. This is the first church sermon, the first sermon about Jesus. And I want to just pick up the very end of that sermon. But as I'm reading this, recall what Jesus said back in Matthew 28. So look at Acts 2, verse 36. This is the last verse of the sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen. The amen's not in there, but he probably would have said something to finish there. Now, verse 37, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do next? What do we do now after we're cut to the heart? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ. And then go down to verse 41. It says, So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just imagine that. 3,000 conversions and 3,000 baptisms in one day. Imagine that. Peter remembered what Jesus had said, make disciples, baptizing them. And that's exactly what he says. And that's exactly what they do. Repent. Turn from your sins, follow Jesus, and be baptized. But he talked there about adding, there were added that day, Luke, in writing Acts, says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You have to ask yourself then, added to what? Added to the people of God, added to the church. How do I know that? Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There was mass sharing going on. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. He added to their number. 3,000 in one day, and then the Lord kept adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were saved, they were baptized, and they instantly became part of the church, and they instantly started participating in church life. Baptism is the first thing people do once they become Christians. We see that pattern all through Acts. Just think of the town of Philippi, which we had just talked about for five months. In Acts 16, Lydia and her household are converted and then baptized. Later on in that same chapter, the Philippian jailer is converted and then baptized. And that's the foundation of the church in Philippi. And that's what Jesus wants the church to keep doing, making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Why? 
While it's obviously very meaningful for the people that are getting baptized, it's their way of making a public confession, a public profession before the church that they are joining, that Jesus is their Lord. But it's also meaningful for the church. It's also meaningful for the church, not only because someone else is joining the body of believers of this local church, but because of everything it dramatizes. Paul explains the symbolism in Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So you see it there. When someone goes down into the water, it shows that a new believer is connected to Jesus in his burial and in his death. Namely, that the power of and the penalty of Sin has been killed. But then as they come up out of the water, the new believer is showing that they are now connected with Jesus in his resurrection. And that it's a brand new life. Colossians 2 verse 12 also uses the same symbolism. But as the church hears those waters splash, as the church sees that person go down and then back up again, it is, it is an audible and visible reminder for all, all believers that are gathered of Christ's death and resurrection. And how it is that that saved us from our sins. And how it is that that brought us into the church and united us with other believers. It's a beautiful picture and a wonderful reminder that God still saves sinners and that he then joins them into churches where they join the family of God, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Ephesians 4 simply says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. When people get baptized in front of the church, we gain something profound. We see the story of the gospel unfold before our very eyes. In our seeing so maybe just one last footnote on that. Baptisms should ordinarily happen in local churches. The assemblies to which that brother or that sister commits to join and to belong and to be accountable for being taught everything that Jesus commanded. Hear that again. It should ordinarily happen in local churches. I think I get the idea of being baptized in the Jordan River or being baptized at a camp, or somewhere outside the local church. There's, certain, there's likely a certain nostalgia about that being in the same river where Jesus was baptized, or at the place where you became a Christian. And if you don't, have you done that, God bless you, you don't need to be baptized again. But baptism should ordinarily take place in front of those believers with whom you will walk side by side in the newness of life. The people on your Israel tour or your camp counselors will likely not be around when you need an encouraging word or when you need someone to redirect you when you're heading in the way of the world or when you need to be stirred up to love and good deeds. But the people of the church will walk beside you and they will lovingly come alongside you and remind you of your baptism, that they were there to witness that. And maybe footnote number two, 
If, you are, if you're a Christian and have not yet been baptized, you need to take care of that. Don't wait. In your bulletin today, I think the um, form that's in there, we now call a connection card. Just check off the box that says baptism, and we'd love to walk, through, walk with you as you start that process. Well, the other way where Jesus gives the church an opportunity to see the story of the gospel unfold is in what we just did, in the Lord's Supper, in communion. There's a couple of Bible passages where we see that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for the church. Over in uh, Luke 22, when Jesus eats the last Passover with his disciples. Luke 22, this is in the upper room. And Jesus is there with the twelve. And he says in verse 19, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This body which is given, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this, church. Do this, apostles, as you start the church, and as the church expands from there, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is telling the disciples to keep observing this meal. Why? To remember Jesus and especially to remember his body and his blood. And the other place Jesus says that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I read from there this morning too. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So he received this from Jesus himself. And now he's delivering it to this church here in Corinth and by extension all churches. And then he repeats Jesus' words from the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus gave it to the apostles, and the apostles pass it down to the church as something that ought to be practiced regularly. And you heard it right from Jesus' lips. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. The bread and the cup help us remember Jesus Christ. As we see, as we touch, as we smell, as we taste, it helps us recall Jesus' perfect life helps us to recall his substitutionary death. It helps us to recall his glorious resurrection. They're visible symbols of the gospel. And they are visible symbols that we remember most vividly when the church gathers, when the church comes together. There is something special, something spiritual that happens when the church gathers around the table of the Lord. Listen to how Paul describes it over in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper highlights our unity and our oneness. A unity that rises out of our connection to Christ by faith. And then Paul's correction on the lack of unity in chapter 11 is based on the assumption that the Lord's Supper happens precisely, he says this five times in 1 Corinthians 11, when the church comes together, when you come together. That's one of the reasons we call this communion. We are one with Christ, 
And because we are one with Christ, we are also one with each other. We share a common unity. We share a communion. It's those two words put together, common unity. We share a communion with Christ and with one another. John MacArthur said this in a recent message on fellowship. He said, Never is the church more visibly expressing its unity as when it gathers around the Lord's table. Never is the church more visibly expressing its unity as when it gathers around the Lord's table. The Lord's table levels us. The Lord's table humbles us. The Lord's table calls us to examine ourselves. The Lord's table calls us to examine our unity. The Lord's table calls us, reminds us that we are all sinners. It reminds us that we all need the cross. But because of Christ's atoning death, because of his body given for us and his blood shed for us, we can all come to the table together to eat and to drink because we're all united into one body by faith in Christ alone. Our fellowship is a deep and profound fellowship and communion. It is a blood-bought fellowship and communion. That's what gives it its depth and its profundity. Therefore, communion is something that should not ordinarily be done apart from the gathered church. Pastor Andrew and I have labored to point out that the two words distanced communion do not make sense when used in combination. Rather, communion is a kind of table fellowship where the people of God, the community of God's people, gather around a table for a meal. It's a table fellowship at which we together are reminded about Christ's sacrifice. It's a table fellowship at which we together confirm and rejoice in each other's common faith. It's a table fellowship at which we together gather around a table as God's new covenant people to take and to eat, to take and to drink. It's a table fellowship at which we together also anticipate the future fulfillment of the promise that Jesus is coming back again to gather his church into his Father's kingdom. When we gather around the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper, we anticipate a future gathering. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, I will not drink again of this fruit of the wine until that day when I drink it with you all in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is going to be at the table one more time. And that's when we're all together in the Father's kingdom. That will be a glorious community feast when all of God's people are invited, Revelations 19, verse 9, to gather around for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Participating in communion together as the body of Christ is a sweet table fellowship for many reasons, but mainly because it is a foretaste of what is to come. Back in the 1800s, J.C. Ryle said, The day is coming when there shall be a congregation that shall never break up. There shall be a Sabbath that shall never end. There shall be a song of praise that shall never cease and an assembly that shall never be dispersed. 1800s. Isn't that a good word for today? Can you imagine how great that will be when we all get together? We're super glad to share in this meal, but when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. 
We are so glad we can participate in the Lord's Supper together today. And I trust that our long absence around the table has served to help you long even more to remember and to recall what Christ has done for you and to long for the fellowship of God's people that is based on our common confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're having a hard time making sense of this. That's natural. No one expects you to make sense of it if you're not a believer. You don't understand all these great gospel realities of which we speak. And maybe that lack of understanding has given you a distinct feeling that you don't belong around the table. Well, there's a reason that you feel that way. It's because this table and this meal is for believers who have tasted the kindness and love and the grace of God in salvation. But friend... If you do indeed feel that way today, I want you to know that you are always invited to come to the table. Jesus, throughout his ministry, kept on saying, come, come to me, come to me. You are invited to come by none other than Jesus himself throughout Jesus' life. He issued this invitation to come. And the way to be included at that table is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Repentance is admitting that you're a sinner and that you, in the power of God, want to make a decisive turn to Christ alone and trusting your life and trusting your future to his perfect life and to his death and to his resurrection from the dead. The wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Christ alone to save you. And when you do that, you are admitted into the family of God. And when you're part of the family of God, you're invited to eat at the table of the Lord. Be baptized, and then come and eat. So in baptism... And in the Lord's Supper, we envision the wonderful realities of the gospel, the significance of which has been communicated in the Word of God. We observe baptism, and as we observe the Lord's Supper in the communion of God's people, we see the Word. These are visible reminders of gospel truths, truths that knit us together and unite us together as the congregation of God's people. And as we see these symbols, they bring us to a place of corporate worship where the people of God assemble to read the word and to pray the word and to sing the word and to hear the word and to see the word. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, how grateful we are How grateful we are to assemble with your people here today. Thank you for bringing us into fellowship with you through Christ in the gospel. And thank you that our fellowship with you in the gospel is lived out in fellowship with fellow believers, with fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're grateful that the Lord, gave us visual reminders of those gospel realities. You know us well enough to know that we need these tangible reminders to help us remember Christ because we're so prone to forget. So thank you 
Thank you for instituting baptism and the Lord's Supper. Thank you for saving our souls. Thank you for your church. We're so blessed to worship you together. May we never again take this blessing for granted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.